Attention Southern filmmakers, submission for the 2017 Yollywood Film Festival are open through the end of July, so time is running out. We're offering our listeners a discounted submission fee. Use the waiver code PODCAST and get 30% off your submission fee through the month of July. We've gotten lots of great submissions, but we're still looking for awesome features and short films to round out this year's program. Yollywood accepts films from all genres that are made in the South, made by Southern filmmakers, and that tell Southern stories. We're looking forward to our week-long celebration of Southern cinema, October 9th through the 15th at Seven Stages Theater in Little Five Point. Tickets will be available soon. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in the loop. On this week's episode, our guest is Raymond Carr, an Atlanta local filmmaker, puppeteer, production designer, and freelance artist. When he's not on set, you can find him behind the DJ booth at Carroll Street Cafe or wrangling baby stuff to donate to refugee families through his charity work with Empowering Refugees. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy our interview with Raymond Carr. So here we are in the studio with Raymond Carr. Welcome, Raymond. Why, thank you for having me. Raymond is a puppeteer Mm -hmm. and an art department person. (laughs) He's a one-man art department. (laughs) That's quite a talent. Uh, No. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm a a filmmaker and um, production designer and, and art director in town. Freelance artist is the way I call myself. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Of course not. What are we here to talk about? <laughs> we're here to talk about what Raymond does in his spare time, his passions, his projects. Yeah. One of the things that Raymond does is uh, he's, a, he's a DJ. That is true. DJ, what's your, what's your DJ name? I go by DJ Ray Ray. All right. Where'd you get that from? <laughs> <laughs> it was, came to me in a dream. <laughs> it's how, catchy. How long have you been DJing? Oh, about six years or so. I actually started DJing because uh, a DJ fell through for a rap party that I had for a uh, movie that I directed. And uh, I always wanted to, and so I bought myself a little turntable and did some YouTube tutorials. And I said, fuck it, let's try this. Did you already have a pretty big record collection prior to that? Yeah, I'm a digital DJ, so um, I, yeah, my... Uh, I'm, I was an expert mixtape maker throughout my formative years. So I've always prided myself with musical taste, I think, uh, from all over the uh, genre, all genres. So that helped. So yes, I already did have a, a pretty extensive uh, music collection of dance, pop, hip-hop. You had a history of like making people move. Exactly. <laughs> So your debut performance was DJing your own rap party. Yeah. That's what you wanted to spend your time doing. Yeah. Instead of enjoying yourself, you yeah. enjoyed yourself by yourself in the booth. Mm-hmm. Well, having other people enjoy themselves. It's very uh, generous. Yeah. <laughs> it was also kind of overwhelming. We did a, it was, it was a very big, large, it was a large indie project. There was uh, several hundred extras and crew members and everything like that for a short film and I felt a little overwhelmed at the rap party to be honest I didn't want to deal with everybody so it's nice to have something to do especially Mm -hmm. I like I'm a nervous person Mm -hmm. I like to just stay busy exactly that was a big motivation behind it so it worked out do you enjoy that kind of escapism of going into the headphones and uh and DJing definitely 
I don't. I like to be as far away from the uh, the audience as possible when I'm DJing, so I can watch people and and make sure they're enjoying themselves and read the audience and figure out what people want to listen to while still not having to take requests. Do you feel like you have like a persona as a DJ? Like, do you feel like when you are DJ Ray Ray, you are no longer Raymond? You are this this other. <laughs> I wear a mask. Cool. Uh, no, um, <laughs> I do always wear a dress shirt and tie uh, whenever I DJ, but not no. Short answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like a classier version of yourself. Oh, I'm pretty classy to begin with, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. You, the listeners can't see you, but... Three-piece suit. I can tell you. <laughs> There's one classy-looking guy in here. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the genres that you like to play, being mm-hmm. dance, electronic, hip-hop kind of stuff. Um, what kind of venues have you played in? I used to... My, my, my DJ career has been kind of winding down as, as of late, but I've had a consistent Tuesday night gig at Carroll Street Cafe for the past five, six years. But I used to play the, the music room quite a bit, and then the Highland Ballroom, uh, which I love playing there. But they, they don't really do the dancey dance parties anymore. Yeah, they used to do a lot more live music of all types there. But yeah. They've gotten scrapped those all together. Yeah. Probably was got sick of hotel guests complaining of all the racket that downstairs. That seems like a, uh, yes. I used to get pretty rowdy for a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, everyone's having fun without me. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's kind of my DJ history anyway. Carroll Street's your home base these days. Yeah. 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 It's nice having a home turf to play. Exactly. Do you have like a go-to song? I always start off with This Must Be The Place, Talking Heads. No matter where I'm playing, I always start with that song. It has a really great beats per minute BPM on it. And it's, even though it's like, I guess technically rock, it still has a very pop beat and tempo. So you can mix in a lot of different songs to that genre. Like, I find that pop BPMs is usually around 100 and like 115 to like 125 beats per minute and i do a lot of beat matching so uh transitioning from one song to another with overlays and stuff so yeah having a song that already has that like really nice tempo that people like um is fun to do plus i like to mix songs that people don't necessarily think to dance to but they find that is very danceable Speaking of overlays and transitions and uh, beat matching, do you do you do any like real like heavy DJ like mash mashups and things like that? I don't do no, not like it's really hard to actually do that kind of stuff live. Um, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of just you need a lot of equipment to to do a lot of that stuff live. And so most of the stuff I do is. Uh, I do most of the, the 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 impressive nature of my DJing comes in the transitions. So I uh, I'll like mash up uh, the transition between Hard Knock Life by Jay Z and Say It Ain't So by Weezer because it like actually mashes up really well. So I'll, I'll like drop out the bass for Hard Knock Life and then have the like hook from Say It Ain't So come in and while still like playing the the uh, the hook the Hard Knock Life 
uh, underneath it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds fun and like something that I would not be able to do. <laughs> you never know until you do it. I guess you're right. Um, no, I actually have done a bit of DJing in my day. I'm saying this with air quotes. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to just play records at bars for drink tickets. Yeah. That's also that's also a thing. Yeah. So is this, you were mentioning earlier to me that this is not a money-making endeavor. That's true. Uh, I always, you know, I do a lot of things because I'm freelance to monetize uh, my life and my experience and everything, just, you know, the hustle. So I... Um, I, decide, I discovered that I really didn't have any hobbies, and every hobby I had, like, I ended up, like, just turning into a money-making uh, experience. So I was like, this is the one thing that's going to not make any money. I'm not going to try and monetize. I'm just going to do this for the fun of it. And anytime I have accepted money for it, it's always been terrible. <laughs> do you feel like it's more, like, artistically freeing because you're not getting paid for it? Yeah, I mean... Just because I want to play my own music, so <laughs> yeah, you're just like, Psh, yeah, I don't want your expectations. Yeah, I don't want to play anything that I don't want to play. So that's really fun. So you don't take requests. I try not to. I'm too polite not to. Um, but I really hate requests. I really hate requests. But if somebody requests something that you want to play anyway, yeah, of course, somebody. Play, yeah, but also I not like if if somebody just requests the dumbest shit that i i will not play it like or just like the most genre inappropriate thing for the moment i'm not gonna play that they're like play canon and d yeah <laughs> do you typically let, try to let them down easy or do you uh if it's really stupid i'll just tell them it's stupid and no and it's like <laughs> why this is we're not gonna play wagon wheel right now like i just got through on a, a trap set we're not gonna fight we're not doing that right now right. <laughs> that's good like proof for the uh like need of existence for djs though because people do want to play really inappropriate songs yeah they don't like can't feel you know feel the vibe exactly I'm trying to kill my vibe <laughs> it's a wagon wheel out of here <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I def- I try and play the crowd. As much as I like to play my own stuff, I definitely am trying to play for an audience uh, and tr- trying to play for a group of people that I see. And, you know, if, if I see a group uh, type of person dancing uh, and already on the dance floor, I really play to like, okay, what is that person really like? Just by sizing them up and being like, I'm going to play this stuff for you. Or if I see a group of people that are like not dancing, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get these people on the dance floor. So that's fun. Kind of make little objectives for yourself. Exactly. Gamify DJing. Uh huh. Totally. So on the flip side of that, you mentioned like all of your former hobbies turning into money making endeavors. Right. Do you feel like you've lost some of the enjoyment of from those types of things? Be it. Uh, puppets or no i mean well you know it depends on the gig uh i've had some really great experiences you know uh i i worked i've worked for, for some really cool shows most recently i was in la for most of last year working with the jim henson company on a show and that was an amazing experience and obviously they're a, a phenomenal uh organization to be working with uh, and so that was 
I mean, it was very stressful and, and very intense. It was for uh, a show on PBS called Splash and Bubbles, um, and it was all motion capture, digital puppetry, uh, which is a whole other thing. Um, but so, like, that was its own level of enjoyment, but also its own level of stress and intensity. But then I have also worked on shows. I worked on a show called uh, Walking with Dinosaurs, which is this live-action animatronic life-size dinosaur uh, arena show, which was also an amazing experience. But it was also there were a lot of difficulties being on on uh, tour because we did uh, a new city every week, uh, and it was a North American tour. So just the stresses, uh, interpersonal stresses and, and all those stresses of just being, being away from home and all that kind of stuff, even though that was like an amazing experience, it was still not as... There were parts of it that were not as awesome as uh, they could have been um, just because of that. So it just depends. Like I, I try and enjoy as much as I can the things that I'm doing. I was just actually at the Guardian Center in uh, Perry, Georgia, uh, production designing a show for the Weather Channel, uh, and this is a disaster preparedness center. Uh, so they have, uh, we had this whole uh, little cul-de-sac town that they are able to flood with like 12 feet of water and then make the water recede and like to do all this like FEMA relief disaster preparedness stuff. So trying to build out that into like a TV set was kind of interesting. Also, it was really hot <laughs> and a lot of bugs. I've been hearing about this place a lot lately, actually. Oh, yeah? It sounds so cool. Like, yeah. there's just, like, collapsed buildings, uh -huh. and it's just a huge post-apocalyptic facility. It sounds awesome. Did they take existing structures to build it, or, no, like, everything? Uh, it's, it, looks like, it looks like they pretty much built it from the ground up. Yeah, all the buildings are, like, cinder block. Um, and durable and and everything so uh yeah they definitely built it from the ground up and then they have just like smashed cars all over the place and whatever is it like those like nuclear testing towns where it's like there's like <laughs> mannequins just like walking through the street yeah they actually do have they had like this fire escape that was coming off the building with like a mannequin like trapped in it and every once in a while you would see like a a cross-touch dummy like lying on the side of the road you'd be like what the hell is that oh, yeah <laughs> it's just it's not a guy that's dying well, it's madness. Uh -huh. How is it like? Um, so you're saying that you're building it out to be a permanent set, right? No, this was just for one. So the the show was called. Well, it it was for a show that was all about disaster preparedness, uh, how to be prepared in your home own home kind of a thing. So it was this guy, Creek Stewart, who is like the Bear Grylls of like the Weather Channel, uh, who's <laughs> like a survivalist trainer, who's. Uh, Super nice guy, but he's telling you how to use like a water cooler as a flotation device if your home floats and stuff like that, and what you need to be prepared and that kind of jazz. So it was all kind of like demonstration stuff. So like we would kind of go in and decorate the, these brick uh, cinder block homes to uh, kind of give a semblance of hominess to it. So it's not as extreme as like doomsday prepping of like, you know thousands of cans of food and no it's like it's actual useful yeah <laughs> preparedness yeah practical application yeah so now raymond you are an expert and when the big one hits you're a good one to have on <laughs> on our team i definitely learned some stuff <laughs> i definitely learned some stuff uh how to use uh, rubbing alcohol and a roll of toilet paper to make a little kitchen stove 
and soak the uh, toilet, put the toilet paper into like a little can and then pour rubbing alcohol on it and light it on fire. And that burns for like 30 minutes. You got a little homemade sterno. Yeah, it really is. It's dope. Cool. <laughs> so do you, do you find that puppetry and art department is pretty much always end up being separate things? Do you ever try to like work it into projects? Well, uh, most of my filmmaking is generally has some element of creature or puppet uh, aspect to it. You know, they they generally go hand in hand. Usually, like if you're a puppeteer on a, uh, a set, you kind of unless it's like a character based puppet that is, you know, delivering lines and whatever, um, you're usually involved. In, like the special effects is what they put you under, or um, so, uh, yeah, definitely. And But then also, you know, a lot of times puppeteering can just mean that you're moving some sort of prop in a, in a particular way or um, a door or a couch or something like that, you know. But then, like I said, if I'm delivering lines or whatever, I'm also SAG, so I, have, I go through that uh, vein too. Mm. Um, so uh, I did some really stupid stuff for... Uh, the show Stand Against Evil on IFC recently, which was absurd. It was really great. <laughs> Dana Gould, who's hilarious and amazing. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of, the, the, the genres generally blend themselves, you know, a lot. Do you ever include puppetry in your DJ sets? <laughs> That's what I really care about. <laughs> not really. Not as of yet. But, you know, we'll see. I think there is a corner in the market for yeah. it. We could. There's oh, yeah. something there. There's something Be like, there. I'm going to take a little break for a minute. Uh, I got My friend's going to step in. <laughs> guest set here. <laughs> so I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and uh, talk about your other passion of um, helping out refugees. This is something that my girlfriend and I wanted to do around Christmas time. We decided, basically, instead of getting each other Christmas gifts, we were going to help uh, participate or donate to... Uh, refugee organization because we both had been interested and um, compassionate towards uh, the plight of the refugee and also just the 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 lot of misunderstanding about refugee and what what that means and actually refugee status and like how that comes about in America Um, and I still think that there's a lot of confusion about that like they're not just immigrants like refugee is not just a term you throw around this is like an actual legal terminology for uh, these people, and they've spent years and years going through a very difficult screening process just to get into the country. So yeah, we were we were very interested in that, and so um, we had some friends that were involved, and so we got involved in this group called Empowering Refugees, and uh, specifically they had a, a group, a family that was expecting a new baby. And so we kind of uh, were fortunate enough to participate in helping them get some of the baby needs. We um, visited the family and then uh, saw what they needed and then did a um, an Amazon wish list and like sent it out to our friends like as a baby registry and uh, got it filled up really surprisingly quickly. Um, so everybody was super great to participate and um, we were able to deliver all the stuff and help set up. The, the crib and, and the changing table and all these different things. And now the friends, this, these, this family of five are friends of ours, and we try and visit them every week or so. 
Um, and more recently, we we have a new family that we're working with, that's ex- expecting a, a baby too. So we're uh, delivering some stuff to them that, through the same process, just like interacting with our friends and put it like literally just going on Facebook and being like, "Hey, what do you got? This is what they need." Um, so you're able to fill the whole Amazon wish list quickly. Uh, the last one. The last one, yeah, pretty much. I mean, either Amazon or just donations. Um, you know, friends who have had children who've outgrown things um, and that and that nature. But, you know, the, the, the great thing about the Amazon thing is you get – it's just easy for people to, you know, spend their money and donate to something. And I know that it's going directly to a person. Immediate results. Yeah, exactly. So it's been uh, very rewarding as of late. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so anybody, and like I said, this is something that anybody can do. Empowering Refugees is the organization. Um, they are, uh, there's, you know, there's volunteer situations. They don't really do uh, a lot of big events, but they do something called the Supper Club, which we participated in, where the um, family basically made dinner for a group, group of our friends, and uh, we asked our friends to donate uh, $50 for the dinner. And it was just a ginormous feast. And uh, that's a way for the family to get some income because they do have a little bit of subsidies when the first couple months when they get into the country, but that runs out pretty quickly. And language is a, uh, a big barrier for them. So it's difficult for some of them to get jobs. And uh, unfortunately, the reason why most of the... Uh, like, if you get into America as a refugee... You have to be coming from a bad situation, and you have to be already, like, in a pretty difficult situation. So, like, the family that we're working with, their daughter has um, a heart disease and has had multiple surgeries and will have multiple more. So you have to not only be a refugee, but you also have to have, like, some really messed up stuff happening in your family uh, physically. So they, they come into the country with a lot of needs outside of just be coming from like this devastated wasteland. I mean, we're specifically working with Syrian refugees, uh, but there are uh, empowering refugees works with uh, a couple of different um, nationalities throughout the Middle East. Um, so I'd imagine that the dinner club menu was of Syrian yeah. cuisine. Uh-huh. It was Arabic food. And it was, like I said, it was all, very delicious and and they feed they whenever we go over to their houses they always feed us so big eaters so it was was really nice it sounds like a good organization because you're making this like human connection with Mm -hmm. people i think that that um the in light of recent decisions from our government and the kind of like outcry from people against refugees i feel like it's because they don't actually know people right and they don't like atlanta you know we have a big community of refugees especially in clarkston mm-hmm. um so i think that you know it seems like a, a great opportunity for people to actually meet people and and like you know the term empowering yeah yeah and sure i'm sure that somebody facing those types of hardships just that kind of human connection can mean a whole lot yeah and you know they are a very like the groups that we've seen that we've been working with, the families that we've been working with, they've, they're so fr- friendly and so nice and so generous, and um, so they they definitely. Unfortunately, they they have like their own little communities, but um, yeah, it's all about 
just the education process. There's we we like I said we do uh, we've done the supper club and hopefully we'll do it again. Uh, but people can get involved in uh, various ways through the you know helping uh, with newborns or with uh, getting cars to these families is a big thing. Um, they have a GoFundMe now that is basically uh, if they reach it they they're trying to reach. I can't remember how the number, but every two thousand dollars they get, they can buy a new car for a, a family, and that fam and that car can be shared through multiple families. You know, um, things of that nature. They're trying to get different kinds of ways to get employment to the these people. Um, so any work that is not heavily language based is uh, beneficial. For these people, because you know, a lot of them are very educated. You know, and, and they're engineers and, and farmers and doctors and things. They, the barrier is just the language. You know, have you been brushing up on your Arabic? <laughs> very, yeah. Well, I'm not even going to attempt. Uh, <laughs> but they have. Uh, we we have been saved by Google Translate. I tell you, that's been a huge lifesaver. We can like just type it into our phone and then like show them our phone. And uh, the kids obviously are a lot better than, with the language, um, so the kids will help with the translation. Um, but yeah, how old are the kids? I know one of them is a newborn, but yeah. So the family we've worked with two families uh, specifically, and uh, one family has five kids, and there's like uh, sixteen, fourteen, twelve, seven, and a newborn. And then the other family we were working with has. Two girls, one that's like 13 and the other one's around like five or six, and then they're expecting a new child. And they have uh, cousins and siblings, um, our friends and neighbors that are around them. So, Sounds very rewarding. Yeah, it is. It is. So, Almost as rewarding, I'm sure, as getting people dancing on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. They go, uh, they go hand in hand. <laughs> One might be a little more uh, like lasting. Right. Um, well, that's exciting. We'll share uh, links and to how to get involved mm -hmm. with Empower Refugees in the show notes. Great. Yeah, but I'm excited. I love Amazon wish lists. So, yeah. And I love helping people. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity to... Help some folks out. Yeah, man. Well, I think that's about our time for today, Raymond. What? It went by so fast. Ah, <laughs> you're just such an eloquent guest. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Raymond, is there any place that people can find your work if they want to see what you're all yeah. about? Yeah, uh, you could go to ninjapuppetproductions.com, and uh, you can see some of my films there and some of the other productions we've worked on. So, yeah. Yeah, there's some... Really great stuff, very imaginative imaginative films, um, excellent work out there, so be sure and check it out. You should also go see some of uh, his live performances if you get the opportunity. Yeah, yeah he'll be at Carroll Street Cafe <laughs> on uh, any given Actually, Tuesday. This, yeah, I don't know when this is coming out, but uh, yeah, soon. Yeah, <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for spending the morning with us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Take care. Adios. Hey. The Hollywood Land Podcast is a production of the Hollywood Film Festival. Our engineer is Paul Katzman. Our theme music is by Jeffrey Butzer and the Compartmentalizationalists. For more information about the Hollywood Film Festival, visit our website at yollywood.org. If you're a fan of the podcast, give us a share. Be sure and subscribe, and please rate us on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at podcast at yollywood.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.